returning listener you have my eternal thanks for continuing to tune in and i really do mean that i know i say that every time but i really do mean it if this is your first time in the dollhouse please come in and have a seat get comfy um but do be aware that this show is absolutely overflowing with spoilers so if that's going to be an issue please turn back now read the book that we are going to be discussing today and then come back and see me i will be here when you're ready I've got a few things that I wanted to go over with you guys. Um, Most importantly, uh, Blue Stocking is going to have no more set release dates. Um, Clearly, given that this episode is almost a week overdue at this point, um, I am killing myself trying to adhere to self-imposed deadlines, and it's just not compatible with grad school and the amount of reading that I have to do and everything else in my life. Um, But I don't want to stop doing the podcast, so I'm just going to stop set release dates, and we're going to set it at, I will release two episodes a month, that much I can promise, Um, but whenever they are released is when they are released, and what I will do, um, if you subscribe to the newsletter, I have a newsletter, and I actually have subscribers now, that's crazy, Um, then you'll know about 48 hours in advance um, that I'm planning to put out an episode. And then I will put out on Twitter about 24 hours um, in advance that the episode's coming out. And again, that will always be subject to change just because, man, there's a lot of reading in grad school. And even knowing that you don't have to do all the grad school reading, they didn't. it's weird because I have one professor, one of my professors currently says, you are expected to do all of the reading. I assign it all for a reason. And it's like a lot of reading. But then I have another professor who says, no one expects grad students to read all the reading. You have to learn how to pick and choose what you're going to read and take in. So with, you know, <laughs> with mixed messages like that, uh, it's an issue. I've always been able to power skim, but even for me, that is really put to the test right now. Um so and also, I mean, with group projects and weird things that change back and forth in grad school. I mean, um, my job is a GRA, and uh, there's a lot of stuff going on. And also, I'm just inherently lazy. So, with all of that going on, it's easier for me to just say I'll have two out a month when I can get them done, and do it that way. Because uh, having a deadline is just making me bonkers so i love my listeners um the few that i have you guys have been wonderful all the way through so the show's not going to end i'm I'm not going to end the show I, I love doing this too much but i've had to change release dates and, and you know updates and scheduled um 
episode schedules so many times in and the show hasn't even been going for a year now. So it would just be better to say, you know what, fuck it. Uh, I can't be contained by no set schedule. And the list of books will still be on the website. The reading list is not going to, it really isn't going to change. I did make one correction. I took one thing and I moved it down to the end um, for reasons, uh, not anything to do with the author or the book. I just had, I needed to switch some things around. So I did, because what I, the way I've tried to do it, and I haven't always been able to hold strictly to it, but what I've tried to do or what I want to do I've tried to do single books in between um, the series it's easier that way because some of the series that I cover you know there's some of them are three books in the series or like the Ken Liu books they're just the size of you know George R.R. Martin books so I've tried to do it where it's series single book series single book series so I did some reshuffling um of the schedule, just some minor reshuffling. Uh, so the Harriet Tubman books will actually be at the end of the schedule in April. And also because, or in May, because May is going to be so crazy for me with the end of uh, my third semester and I'm moving. So the Harriet Tubman books are a little shorter. Um, they'll be easier for me to do and still give them uh, the full respect that they deserve. So that got moved not taking them off, just move them down. But again, like I said, the reading list is on the website. Um, I just, all I did was remove the dates. I'll put dates back on as far as once the show is actually aired. I'll add the date. Um, just, I don't know if any of you actually even look at the, Well, okay, I take that back. I know some of you do. I know that there's a couple of you uh, that actually listen to it through the website, which I think is pretty cool. And there's somebody that goes in there and hits like, and it's it's a couple of you, which is, is pretty awesome. Don't know who you are, but thank you. Um, so that's the deal with the release dates. And, yeah, about the newsletter. <laughs> um, thank you to, to the subscribers of the newsletter. I added that to the site when I first got the whole thing going because Squarespace has – it's really easy to do it. You just toss the widget up there. And the way it works is that when you do that, it gives you – it shoots you a, a spreadsheet. And because I use Google Drive, I can save it to my Drive account. So I've had this spreadsheet, It's and it's a dynamic spreadsheet. It's saved into my Drive account. So theoretically, it's supposed to update every time someone signs up because I had tested it to see how it worked, and you know, I tossed in my email address, and it takes about a minute or two, and then all of a sudden the spreadsheet updates in my Drive, and there's an email address in there. And if you use Drive, you know that you can see the little thumbnail uh, of a document without actually going into it. So my eyes would glance over every once in a while to thumbnail, and I wouldn't see, you know, any entries in that spreadsheet. It never changed for six months. It never changed. So I had really kind of stopped paying attention to it. And then for some reason today, my eyes, uh, glanced over to it and I saw that there were marks in there. I opened it up and I had three subscribers, two of them from December. So subscribers from December. And I sent out a, I sent out my first newsletter. Um, (laughs) it's pretty piss poor because I was so caught off guard. Um, But subscribers from December and the one that subscribed yesterday, thank you. And the ones from December, I am so sorry. Um, I didn't even notice. I apologize for that. Uh, (laughs) If I didn't do things half-ass, I wouldn't be me. So I think I've remedied that. I'm going to try to get on some kind of regular newsletter schedule uh, and see how that goes now that people actually seem to be interested in that. 
so that option is there as well. You know, if you don't get enough blue stocking. Um, <laughs> and also, I guess, for, you know, since there's not a regular update schedule, that would be a good way to go. So that is release dates and newsletter. Uh, I also, some more house cleaning. I want to remind everybody, if you're an author and you're listening or you're an editor and you're listening or you're connected to publishing in some way you, or a steampunk book and you're listening, please remember that I do not accept ARCs or books. for. Uh, I don't accept review copies at all for any reason from anyone, no exceptions. And there are some of you that I've gotten to know on Twitter and Facebook, and I adore you. I think you are great people. Um, but I'm not doing review copies. And the reason for that, I may have explained this before, but in case I haven't, I did book reviews for a very long time. Uh, if you go to the Internet Wayback Machine and look up bookhor.net, that was me. Um, I don't suggest you look. I think I was a terrible person back then, so I probably said a lot of really awful things, and now someone's going to go find it, and they're going to out me on Twitter as being a terrible person. I was a terrible person um, in my 20s. But anyway, I had a website, bookhor.net, and I did. This was back in the early days of blogging itself. Uh, so there was only a few of us that were book blogging. It was still a brand-new thing. This was back in 2003. Or two, 2002, I may have started 2003. Anyway, it was a long time ago. And I just reviewed books that I, I would go to Barnes & Noble, you know, typical book person. This was before I got, you know, my iPad. Still buying hard copy books. I would go to Barnes & Noble, buy stacks of books. I'd come home and read them and I'd review them just because I thought it was fun. And, you know, I always, I've always had a burning need to tell people who I am and <laughs> what I thought of things. So I would review books on bookwhore.net. And about part of the way through that, an author named L.A. Banks uh, of the Huntress series, I had reviewed one of hers. Um, I loved the Huntress series, and it was one of the early books. And now that I'm Googling her, I did not know that she passed away in 2011. Holy shit. Wow. Okay. Well, she was a great lady. She was really cool. Um, she was the first person that contacted me after I reviewed one of her Huntress books. Um, it was a gorgeous book, and I loved it. And she emailed me, and she's like, would you like a, an ARC? And I'm like, what's an ARC? I didn't know what that was. Uh, for those of you who don't know, it means advanced release copy. They're usually, they can be uncorrected proofs or galleys. Um, they probably don't have a cover, a real cover. But she sent me signed copies of her books after that for a while, actually. I've still got them all on my shelf. I'm looking at them. Um, and so that was really cool. That was a lot of fun. And so I mentioned it on the blog that, hey, this, this – and I was always, you know, disclosed that I got these books for free. And so I had a couple of different authors that would send me free books, and it was really cool. Um, and I actually got contacted by Anne Rice one time. I totally did. I'm not lying. I don't still have it anymore. Um, but she wanted to thank me for a review of Blood Canticle. I think I can't remember. Um, it was really cool, and it was a fun thing to do. But there's also a, an obligation that comes with that, obviously. They're sending you the books. So, again, this whole schedule thing that I have, yeah. Um, and then it got to be too much keeping up with it all on my own, so I started writing for a site that's not there anymore, I think, called bookfetish.org. Um, and actually, the lady that I wrote for, she died of cancer a few years ago as well. Um, so I wrote for Book Fetish for a long time, and that was different because they had contracts with, or not contracts, I take it back, um, 
my editor at that site, she had connections with different publishing houses, with Hachette and all of the different ones. And they would send us boxes full. She would, they would send her boxes full of arcs, and then she would divvy them up among all of us reviewers and, you know, send them out, and we would do them. But it just became a thing where there was a... a and a, let me just preface this with I'm not defaming anyone. I'm not... I don't even remember the names of the people that we that we dealt with. Um there was never anything improper, anything like that. It was just that there, it always felt like there was this idea that if we wanted to keep getting free books and free arcs and keep a good working relationship with these people, especially with the editors that contacted us directly, um, that we needed to not be, um, negative with our reviews it was a whole weird culture and thing that was going on and I also got emails (laughs) we would get self-published things sent to us because Sheila allowed it we would get uh, that was my editor she allowed it we would get self-published things too and back then self-publishing was a little different um and I had run-ins with authors and again I was a different person back then. I was I was a mean person back then. I wasn't always really nice, and I thought it was, you know, clever and, uh, you know, witty to be super sarcastic and snarky. Um, and so, to be fair, I did say things that I, I – I probably said a lot of things I shouldn't have said back then. Um, but I did write some reviews that – legitimately there were some really terrible books that we got guys we got some really terrible books um i could have been nicer with my reviews but i did get some authors that did contact me very angry about the reviews and it was finally i think it was around 2009 that i just i stopped i didn't have the energy or the patience to keep doing it and i was tired of angry authors and angry editors and angry publishers Uh, not liking what I said or what I had to say. It was just, it was way too much stress for something that I was doing for free. Keep that in mind too. All of this, all of that time, all of those years, that was for free. Um, I got, you know, free books out of it, but like I said, 90% of them were really terrible. Uh, So it was just, it was too much trouble. Long story short, too late. Um, I won't do ARCs because there's an obligation. I feel like there's an obligation to it. And if I run across something that's really terrible, I'd rather just put it away and never look at it again and not have, any, <laughs> not have anybody know. That's why the overwriting, that's why with this show, these are not reviews. I don't review books. I try to do critical analysis of books that I like and that I think are important. I'm not going to bring a book on here that I don't like and rip it apart. I I, I can't do that anymore. I'm not down with that shit anymore. Um, That's not cool. So I'm not – that's why I don't want review copies because someone sends me a review copy and then I feel obligated to review it and this is not a review show, especially if it's terrible. I just – I can't – that is – that's just bad, bad vibes, man, and I can't do that anymore. So – that's why I don't do arcs. I'm not being a snot. I'm not being fussy or imperious or anything like that. It's just a matter of I can't. That is an emotional commitment that I don't need added onto everything else. 
So that is my long story on why I don't do arcs. Um, and I've probably already given that explanation in a show before, but I can't remember. So, you know, have it again. Um, let's see. What else did I want to discuss with you guys? Music. I have asked, had it asked before um, how I choose the music that I choose. With the exception of the Old Bridge Rhythm Band a couple weeks ago, I always pick the music off freemusicarchive.org because I can't afford to license music, uh, popular music. I just can't. It's way out of the range of what I am up to doing. Um, and all of the Free Music Archive has really good stuff, and you can donate to it uh, if you choose to. They have really good music. Now, that being said... If, and also, the what I do when I pick music, I literally just take keywords that apply to uh, the books, the, the books that I'm covering, and I toss it into the search, and I don't even always know what genre I'm looking for, um, if I'm looking for, I do a lot of folk on here, but sometimes there's rap, sometimes there's soul, sometimes there's, uh, uh, I think I've had country music before, um, pop, I've definitely had pop before, I think there's been a punk piece, so it's literally what smacks me in the face I, it could take me hours and hours and hours of searching through there to find the perfect piece um, and I think I've found pretty good pieces so far so that's how I choose like I said it's just tossing keyword after keyword after keyword until something comes up that I think will work for the show that being said if you have if you're a musician if you have a song that you want me to play that is yours that you own that you have produced with your own, you know, two little hands and your voice, uh, send it over. I'll give it a listen and see. Now, that's not a guarantee that I'm going to play it. There are no guarantees that I will play it. But if I think it'll work, then I'll play it. Again, I can't pay you. I can give you free advertising. And I can put links to, you know, all your contact info in the show notes. And I can plug you on the show. Um, so if you want to get some, some free advertising... Um, and send some free music my way to play, let me know. Um, or, again, if you have a song that's on iTunes and I can pay the 99 cents to download the song, if you give me permission to do it that way, um, then we'll talk and we will work something out. So contact me, steampunkdollhouse at gmail.com. I am a pretty easygoing person, uh, or at least I try to be. I'm open to a lot of things, so you know, give me a shout. That's the music. Uh, something really cool that happened on Twitter this uh, last week, the image that I use and that has built so much uh, or has has informed and inspired so much of this whole uh, blue stocking, radical militant librarian, you know, in a bunker holding out against the government um, that you've all seen or I'm sure you've, you have to have seen the image at this point if you follow me anywhere. It's the image that I use as my Twitter handle for the uh, the podcast Twitter. It's the radical militant librarian, the little girl with the blue beret holding the book and the shushing finger with the Read Me My Rights banner um, or uh, wearing the sash, which is where I get my tagline, Reading Your Rights. Um, that image, that's the radical militant librarian. Um, and I've explained the story to you guys before about Homeland Security and <laughs> how they wanted information about library patrons back in the 2000s and early 2000s, and they were being thwarted by radical militant librarians. Um, but that started a little movement, um, people making different paraphernalia and swag with that on there. 
Um, but the image that, in that image that I got, I found it, I loved it, I used it, like I said, to design my entire outfit and everything around it. But I didn't really give a thought as to where it actually came from. Um, it's just one of those things that pops up on Cafe Press. I liked it. And then I got it. I was tweeting with the, uh, with Unwoman. Um, we were talking about famous people because I think she's famous. She's famous to me. Um, and then all of a sudden, this woman named Karen Ulrich pops up in, in the mentions. And she's like, I'm sorry to hijack, but you're using my image as your avatar. That's really cool. <laughs> I was like, What? So, yeah, Karen Ulrich, back in 2006, um, I found this little bit on, online that she, uh, she had noticed some other efforts at producing the RML gear and that she had made this proud-to-be-a-radical-militant librarian uh, image. And she was, um, they were donating profits to freedom of speech organizations uh, from the Cafe Press. And so I, when she said, you know, she said, that's awesome that you're using that, I said, wait a minute, you have to see this. And I tweeted at her the, the pictures of me in the full outfit with the star, you know, the, the red, white, and blue outfit. And she, she seemed to really like it. She seemed very excited. So that was super cool. Uh, that made my week. I was very excited about that. Uh, so Karen Ulrich, yeah, she is because she gave birth to the, to the, the blue stocking image, if you will. Uh, pretty cool. See, I did want to quickly mention, um, I promise I'll wrap this up eventually and we're going on 20 minutes here but i had a lot to talk about um real quick i wanted to mention april and the extraordinary world um this is something that flavio and i had discussed on our crossover episode in december uh it's an animated film it's uh, actually french it was <laughs> here we go with my high school french um avril et le monde truquet um which is literally translates to april and the fake world or the American version is April in the Extraordinary World. It was a it was came out in 2015. It's a French, Belgian, Canadian animated science fiction adventure film, and uh, the French version uh, is voiced by April is voiced by Marianne Cotillard. I can't remember the name of the actress from the uh, American version, but the American version the villains are voiced by Susan Sarandon and J.K. Simmons. So that was pretty funny. Um, the visual style is based as a direct homage to a French cartoonist named Jacques Tardy. Um, the, the story was great. Uh, the, and as far as the animation goes, uh, the story is, this, it's late 1800s, Paris, um, and they're trying to create, the scientists, uh, April's great-grandfather, I think, is trying to create a formula to make the army invincible um, or invulnerable. And it doesn't go right. He explodes, but his children get away. I can't really remember. I think it was that was oh, this was a while back that I watched it. Anyway, all of the scientists are getting kidnapped and taken away. So France doesn't really have any scientists anymore because they've all disappeared. Um, April goes through this whole thing with losing her grandfather and her parents. She thinks they're all dead. She grows up. They've got, she's got this amazing cat named Darwin uh, who could talk. And Darwin was actually voiced by Tony Hale from Arrested Development. And he was he Buster on Arrested Development. He was wonderful. Um, so there's a whole story with April um, finding out that her, her, not only her, her parents but her grandfather, none of them are dead. Um, the serum does, they do are able to create the serum because she uses it to save Darwin because he was old and dying. He's a cat, you know. 
and all this crazy stuff happens and it was really exciting the artwork as far as the architecture um it was beautiful i just didn't dig on the animation of the people um i'm not a fan of tardy anyway i never have been it's very round i think i'm spoiled by by anime um I'm used to my animated figures looking a certain way now. And I also grew up with um, one of my favorite cartoons was uh, the Batman animated series from was the late 80s, early 90s. Um, also Gotham by Gaslight. I watched the movie, not super pleased. They changed it from the comic book, um, but it still wasn't bad. So I'm used to that sharp featured style of characters. Um, I don't know. The, the tardy style it's very round features almost it reminds me of Doug the cartoon Doug and I never liked that either that I don't know it, it didn't appeal to me everything else about it did as far as the buildings and the, the machines and the creatures Darwin was just was hysterical but the people something about it just didn't work for me that being said it was a great story absolutely great I would prefer to have watched it in French if you know me you know I don't really like um dubbed at all i prefer to watch stuff in its original language if i can with subtitles obviously um but i didn't get the option i can't remember what i watched it on um something on roku one of the streaming services but i didn't get the option to even watch it in french it was only giving me the uh, the english option so april in the extraordinary world avril et le monde truquet uh it was really good um like i said the the style was off-putting but that's just me that's my own weirdness uh, but I do recommend it it's it's a great little steampunk animation um, definitely worth a look now like I said the Gotham by Gaslight I think that just came out um, as an animation and I watched that one they changed the story as far as the the Ripper in Gotham and the ending I don't know I wasn't super pl- I mean it was still it was you know steampunk Batman so <laughs> it's still super badass but I liked the the original graphic novel better um I'm hoping they will make Wonder Woman Amazonia um that would be amazing but you know we'll see we'll see what happens now that's all the happy stuff um I have to move on here and this does need to be discussed um something that's not super happy and it has had a bit of an effect on the steampunk community um given that it involves steampunk world's fair um jeff mack is the creator of steampunk world's fair and wicked fair and a whole bunch of other stuff um he's been big in the steampunk community for years and it has recently came to my attention um recently that there are numerous and very serious accusations accusations of sexual harassment and incredibly bad business practices that suddenly, well, not suddenly, in the way that these things do, um, it, everybody has apparently known about it for years, but now it's people are paying attention. Um, it actually came to my attention. I am quote-unquote friends with Jeff Mack on Facebook um, because I had friended a lot of different people in the Steampunk community for networking and information reasons, um, as you do when you start something like a podcast. So we were friends, but that there was never really anything more than superficial interaction. So I have no, stating here at the front, I have no, no dog 
in this race. Um, nope, I, I'm not. I don't know him. I didn't know him to be a good or a bad person. I knew him as a person on Facebook that I superficially communicated with um, here and there, and that was it. So, and I also haven't been on Facebook a whole lot lately. So I happened to log on and see. I'm also friends with the Valentine Wolf, the um, Victorian Chamber Metal group that I love. They're adorable. And um, the Valentine Wolf had posted that they were pulling out of Wicked Fair, which is soon, um, coming up right about now, I think. But they were not going to be performing at Wicked Fair after all because of some things that had happened, some of these accusations that had been popping up, um, and that there was some, <laughs> the community really needed to do some healing and to talk about some things. And I'm like, everybody's posting on the thread, what? What happened? Oh, my God, you know. Um, and so somebody else posted on the thread a link to uh, Owl Eye View. It's a blog. Uh, let me just verify that um, before I start talking out of my butt. Um it is owleyeview.blogspot.com, and of course the link will be in the show notes. But I went over to Owleyeview, Owleyeview, that's hard to say, and um, was reading about what happened. And let me preface all of that with he has come out about this, he has spoken about these accusations, um, and it was the usual non apology apology. Um, so Allyview has this whole, whole list of um, accusations as far as the sexual harassment, the things that he's done, um, bad business practices, uh, really weird problems with the fairs that he does. And the, because he's got a whole event company, the, the Jeff Mack events. It's not just him. It's Jeff Mack and then there's JME. Um, so what happened was he posted what he said was, um, let's see. Finally, and most importantly, there's the matter of consent. When one is in a position of authority, one can lose their sense of perspective and lose sight of things that might harm another person. It is no excuse for such errors, and sometimes it can take a public reckoning to bring home a truth that I should have been able to find on my own. In reading the accounts of the three individuals who have been brave enough to step forward, I have realized my actions have been inadvertently <laughs> underlying that one right there. Circle it. Uh, inadvertently harmful to many people. I would like to step back from my public role to take the chance to re-examine many parts of my life that I have taken for granted and hope that I may return a better person and a better part of the community. So <laughs> when you go to Owl Eye View and you read these accusations, they're going back to 2006. That is 12 years. 12 years. Getting... <laughs> Here's my view on all of this is because I know people, the Me Too is turning into a witch hunt. Here's the thing. Someone out somewhere, I don't know, gets drunk, really drunk, makes an inappropriate pass, does something inappropriate at a party, who wakes up in the morning, realizes what they have done, and abjectly apologizes for it and attempts to, you know, makes every attempt to change their behavior. That... That can be forgivable, depending on who you are and what's happened. That is something that can be you can you can be you can forgive and get past that. Um, Twelve years of behavior and, and three at least three people that have come forward. <laughs> you should have known what you were doing a lot sooner than the three people finally coming out after 12 years and saying, "Hey, <laughs> he did this." Um, that's a bullshit apology. You don't know that what 
it's 12 years, you can't not know that what you're doing is wrong. You know that what you're doing is wrong, or you just truly don't think, like the everybody, like the Donald Trump thing, I don't think he actually knows that the things he's doing are wrong. He is that stupid and that arrogant. And it, so this, that's the same kind of idea I have with these situations where do they really not know? Are they just that arrogant and that stupid? And so that's why they don't ever stop the behavior until all of these women are shrieking at them like harpies? I don't know. But there is no excuse. Like he said, there's no excuse for such errors. These aren't errors. This is a pattern of behavior that will haunt these girls these people, these individuals who have been assaulted, this will haunt them. That's not an error. An error doesn't haunt you. <laughs> Assault haunts you. So this is not an error. This is not inadvertent. This, this is not a situation. Realize my actions may have been inadvertently harmful. Fuck that. That is a bullshit apology. Absolute bullshit apology. And I don't know. At this point, I don't expect any any kind of a better apology from any of these people. They're all giving the same kind of apology because it's all patterns of behavior and things that have gone on for years and years and years. Like I said, something that happened one time, a, a drunk grope at a party and an abject apology and never doing it again, that's one thing. Doing this for an extended period of time that is completely different and completely inexcusable and unforgivable thing. Now, like I said, Jeff Mack is not just himself. He is also Jeff Mack Entertainment, I believe it is. <laughs> so they also released a statement. Um, Jeff is taking time to step back and address those most important things, especially those failings that have led him to hurt people when he did not intend to. As his staff, we support him in his efforts to improve and stand by him. We look forward to, after a period of reflection, for him to learn the ways that he must improve his return to work that has brought joy to so many. So, essentially, Jeff was naughty and has been sent to his room to think about what he did. And then, you know, once the women stop screaming, he will come back to work, is essentially what we have going on here. Um, and that's bullshit, too. <laughs> So many of these apologies could be improved like a thousandfold and made so much more believable if we could stop saying things like hurt people when he did not intend to or hurt people inadvertently or I am sorry if what I did upset you. Things like that. Stop qualifying your apology. Just say I'm sorry. Say I did a bad thing and I'm sorry and I will do my best in the future to course correct and, you know, I, I understand what I did wrong. Stop saying, stop qualifying it with he did not attend to or it was inadvertent. Because that's not an apology. What you're saying is you thought what you did was okay, but people got pissed off. That is what you're saying. And that's, that makes nothing better. That's, that is, that, because that is a completely absence as complete absence of responsibility. That is what you were doing. You were shitting all over that person who said that you hurt them. Because what you're saying is, well, I just did this. It's not my fault if it hurts you. Stop with the qualifiers. Just say, I'm sorry. And take what you are given. Take the punishment. Take the shit that is being said to you because you deserve it. 
fucking man up or woman up. Grow up. Take responsibility for your actions. Accept that what you did is wrong. And don't do it again. Don't do it in the future. Don't. Okay. So, (laughs) as a consequence of all of this, uh, a lot of artists pulled out of Wicked Fair. I will be curious to see who um, decides to pull out of... Who, if anybody, decides to pull out of Steampunk World's Fair. I'm curious about that. Now... Um, story punks, we love story punks. We love Cindy Grigg. She is fucking amazing. She's one of my favorite people, I have to say. Um, and so when this came up, I shot her a message on Twitter to uh, let her know what was going on. And she went through, she did the same thing I did. She read the account, she looked at everything, uh, and she just decided to pull the two-parter that she did with him. Because this actually, all of this bubbled up, uh, I think a day or two after she posted the, the two-parter with him. Um, so, and she said the same thing I did. She, you know, she had no uh, bad interactions with him, but again... That doesn't mean anything. We know that. I didn't have any bad interactions with him. It happens all the time. Um, but she decided to go ahead and pull it. She wasn't comfortable leaving it up. And she did put an explanation on her site as well as on the show about why she pulled those off. Um, so we'll see what happens if this is a situation where it gets swept away. But I hope not. Um Subcultures, there's this idea that subcultures like this tend to, tend to be, there's a myth that subcultures are self-policing, and that's having been in a few different subcultures over the years, a few different weird little groups of people, um, it's not self-policing so much as there's, again, sweeping under the rug, um, and ignoring it or minor ostracization, ostracization, the person, the offender may be ostracized for a little while and then they're let back in. And I'm, I'm afraid that's what's going to happen here with, um, with Jeff. I'm afraid that they're going to send him away until everybody stops screaming about it and then they'll let him back in and we'll see if it happens again. Um, my guess is it will. You don't continue a pattern of behavior like that for that long and then suddenly realize that it's wrong. I, uh, take that back. I don't I don't want to generalize. I mean, I was a terrible person for a really long time, and I stopped, and I tried, I've tried to not be a terrible person again. It can happen, but there are certain things that I don't know. We'll see. We'll see what happens. Um, that's just my take on it. Um, but this shit is everywhere, man. It is everywhere. It is popping up all over the place, and it's good. It's upsetting, and it sucks. Um, but it needs to come out, man. <laughs> it's festering wound. It needs to. It needs to be taken care of. We've got to. We've got to lance this shit. We've got to get it done. Um, and that's. We've got to. Keep, you know, we got to keep our own houses clean just as much as the rest of them. So. It sucks. We'll see what happens with the Steampunk World's Fair. Um, and now that I have completely downed everybody and gone for 40 minutes with that introduction, <laughs> sorry about that. So if you will hang tight for just a few minutes, a few more minutes, uh, we're going to hear some audibles, some words from friends, and then we will be back and we will start breaking down clockwork, clockwork Cairo. 
and see what we think about it. So hang tight and I'll be right back with you guys. This week's episode of the Steampunk Dollhouse is brought to you, as usual, by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download at www.audibletrial.com slash spdhpod. Now, this week's book does not have an audio version, and so, for your Audible trial, I am recommending Three Empires on the Nile, which tells the rise of the first modern Islamic state and its fateful encounter with the British Empire of Queen Victoria. In the hands of author Dominic Green, the story of the Nile's Three Empires is an epic in the tradition of Kipling, the Bard of Empire, and Winston Churchill, who fought in the final destruction of the Mahdi's army. It is a sweeping and very modern tale of God and globalization, slavers and strategists, missionaries and messianists. Visit www.audibletrial.com slash spdhpod to download Three Empires on the Nile or any one of Audible's 180,000 titles. That's www.audibletrial.com slash spdhpod. Portentous perils in the 23rd century. The year is 2217, and the fifth great steampunk revival chalks forever on. This month, we're all wearing VR goggles that perfectly recreate the actual vista in front of us with the one alteration that now everybody is tipping a top hat in polite greeting. Join me as I recount my many adventures, gasp at the scientific know-how of my aunt, Dr. Erudition Synonym, respectfully at my terribly attractive fiancé, Happiness George, and shake your tiny fists at our evil nemesis, Professor Von Pun, and his beastly gentleman. Featuring Monkey Butlers. <laughs> this thrilling moment. Does anyone have any ketamine? I think I'm addicted to that now. This. Attention. This is being drawn to its doom. This hilarious character cameo from semi-retired national landmark Big Ben. Hans Zimmer. I am Hans Zimmer. And so much more. Ula, ula, I'm loving it. Ula, ula, I'm loving it indeed. Ask your iTunes or off-brand podcast provider to supply you with your free dose of portentous perils in the 23rd century today. If you enjoy it, tell your friends. If you don't enjoy it, well, tough. It's not all about you, Carol. A body falls past the window, whatever. <laughs> and you put, put it down and you feel like shaky all over. Both your hands are covered. Immediately peg him as a cogman. So we've known each other for years. One of the knives is missing from a garter hilt because it is being pressed to your throat. Oh, damn. We had a... Oh, my God. Oh. So you took money from him, huh? We talked about this earlier. <laughs> attacked by the forces of the American Confederation. <laughs> yeah. Are you constantly checking for traps? <laughs> the Steamrollers Adventure Podcast is available at rickstories.com or on iTunes. You can also get it at Stitcher and Google Play. All right, literary listeners, we are ready to get started. Took long enough, right? Okay. Uh, I do have a few terms to go over with you not as many as usual uh just because an anthology different stories different stuff but because they're all they all circle around egypt if not in egypt there are a couple of uh terms that were kind of ubiquitous to the book so uh, and again these terms are or these um explanations are from wikipedia uh, as usual, I open the curiosity door. It is up to you to walk through it. This is just to give you a little bit of background. So the first one, um, 
is the Shabti or the Ushabti or the Shawa, Shawabti. Uh, there's a couple of different um, spellings and ways to pronounce it. And they were funerary figurines used in ancient Egypt. Um, and if you think that you don't know what they are, you probably do. If you've seen any kind of Egyptian exhibit anywhere, because these figures were everywhere. Um now, according to the summary, they were placed in tombs among the grave goods and were intended to act as servants or minions for the deceased should they be called upon to do manual labor in the afterlife. The figurines frequently carried a hoe on their shoulder and a basket on their backs, implying they intended to farm for the deceased. They were usually written on by the use of hieroglyphics, typically found on the legs, called answerers. They carried inscriptions asserting their readiness to answer the god's summons to work. The practice of using Ushabtis originated in the Old Kingdom around 2600 to 2100 BCE with the use of life-size reserve heads made from limestone, which were buried with the mummy. Most of the Shabtis were of minor size and many produced in multiples. They sometimes could cover the floor of a sarcophagus. Um, now, this says that the, that the exceptional Shabtis are of a larger size or produced as a one-of-a-kind masterwork. Um, but again, due to their extreme commonness through all of the Egyptian time periods and uh, because of the, the early museum drive to have as much... Um, many ancient Egyptian artifacts as possible. This is one of these most commonly represented objects in Egyptology displays. They were produced in huge numbers, and along with scarabs, they are the most numerous of all uh, Egyptian antiquities to survive. Um, to me, they seem similar to the, um, the terracotta warriors of Xi'an, um, that kind of thing, except small. Um, so instead of sacrificing a slave to go to the afterlife with their master, these were created, um, or along the lines of golems or anything else of that nature. They're um, creatures created to do their master's bidding when they are called upon. And like I said, you've seen them. If you've been to any kind of archae or, um, Egyptian um, exhibit, you've seen them. And now this next one are the jinn, also romanized as jinn, spelled D-J-I-N-N, -N, or anglicized as genies. Uh, they are supernatural creatures in early Arabian and later Islamic mythology and theology. They are not purely spiritual, but also physical in nature, being able to inter interact in a tactile manner with people, people and objects, and also subject to bodily desires like eating and sleeping. Jinn are mentioned in Middle Eastern folktales, and they're often depicted as monstrous or magical creatures. Though jinn figments from stories are from these stories are generally considered to be fictional. Um, let's see. Now this says that they are that jinn J I N N is an Arabic collective noun deriving from the Semitic root J N N, whose primary meaning is to hide or to conceal. So some authors interpret the word to mean literally beings that are concealed from the senses. Uh, the origin of the word jinn remains uncertain. Some scholars relate the Arabic term jinn to the Latin genius as a result of syncretism during the reign of the Roman Empire under Tiberius Augustus, but this derivation is also disputed. Another suggestion holds that jinn may be derived from Aramaic jinnaya, uh, G-I-N-N-A-Y-A, with the meaning of tutelary deity. Others claim a Persian origin of the word in the uh, form of the Avestic Janie, J-A-I-N-I, a wicked female spirit. Janie and I, if I'm not saying that right, I apologize. Janie were among various creatures in the possibly even pre-Zoroastrian mythology of peoples of Iran. 
The anglicized form genie is a borrowing of the French genie from the Latin genius, a guardian spirit of people and places in Roman religion. It first appeared in 18th century translations of the Thousand One Nights from the French, where it had been used owing to its rough similarity in sound and sense. Now, this next one is, actually this last one, is Kemet. It is the Egyptic. Egypt- <laughs> Egyptological pronunciation of KM.T, the ancient Egyptian name of Egypt. Clearly, I don't speak hieroglyphs. I don't speak hieratic. I don't speak ancient Egyptian or actually Greek either. Um, so I can't give you – I believe it's Kemet. That's how it looks. Um what it actually means is the black land, and that's believed to be referring to the fertile black soils of the Nile floodplains, um, distinct from the red land of the desert, which uh, this lists as Deshret. So we've got Kemet and Deshret. This name is commonly vocalized as Kemet, but was probably pronounced in a way that I can't pronounce in ancient Egypt. Uh, let's see. Now, another name was the land of the riverbank. And the names of Upper and Lower Egypt were um, translate as Sedgeland and Northland, respectively. So just those few terms, like I said, because it's an, it's an anthology with different stories, um, we're not going to have all the same ideas that you guys need to know, but those are just some basic things that did come up in quite a few of the stories. Um, so let's get into Clockwork Cairo, edited by Matthew Bright. And I didn't want to read the editor's note because I thought it was interesting uh, why he decided to do this. So this is just an excerpt from the note. Um, oh, and also before I read that, let me just clarify, I won't be covering all of the stories in detail because we would be here forever uh, and the intro was long enough already. But the you know with the theme of my show that I like to do a critical analysis of the steampunk that covers important social issues. Um, not all of these stories do, and actually that's why this anthology is a really good mix of just good old-fashioned exciting adventure stuff, and then some deeper political stories um, that cause you to to think a little a little farther along. So it's a really good mix. It's it's a good I think it's a good um, compilation for both sides, people that like the adventure and people that like the social commentary and, you know, the people that like both. So some of these I'm not going to, I'll tell, I mean, I'm going to give you a summary of everything, but I'm not going to go into a lot of depth on some of them. Doesn't mean that they were bad. Actually, none of the stories were bad. They were all really good, but not everything goes along with the theme of the show. So just get that out there right now. Um, but what part of what, um, Matthew Bright says, he said, When I thought a little harder about why the word exotic sprang so easily to my mind and realized that my heritage was what conjured that, I am, after all, British, and in that way of jokes that hide the truth, it is often said we miss our empire. The more I examined this, the more I was spurred to consider what I wanted this collection to look like. Yes, I wanted the explorers and the airship captains. Yes, I wanted ladies in corsets menaced by mummies, but I also wanted much more. I wanted voices that are often overlooked, voices so infrequently untold, so frequently untold, and voices often missing from history. Steampunk and the science fiction and fantasy genre as a whole has room for a wealth of diverse voices within it, and that was what I wanted from Clockwork Cairo, and I believe he succeeded. This is, there is a really, really good range in here. Um, They did a really good job, so I'm going to go ahead and get started. I'm going to do, there's uh, 18 stories, I believe, so I split it up half and half. Um, We'll do it that way, so we will run through the first half, then we will take our break and run through the second half, so... 
The very first one that we are going to cover is The Curious Case of the Werewolf That Wasn't, The Mummy That Was, and The Cat in the Jar by Gail Carriger. Now, this is, um, if I remember my Parasol Protectorate series correctly, this is actually a prequel to the Parasol Protectorate. Um, if you, I'm going to go on the off chance that you were not familiar with those books, um, about young Miss Terabody who is born soulless. Uh, she literally does not have a soul. And so, in order to, this is set in the, the 19th century in London, um, in England, and she doesn't have a soul. And so, what she believes is that she's very logical, very intellectual. Um, she's referred to as a blue stocking on more than one occasion. <laughs> and uh, she believes that because she doesn't have a soul, that she needs to work that much harder to be a good person, uh, which I thought was an inter- interesting take on the concept of being soulless. But what we find out through the series of books is that she actually can um, negate the powers of the... Because there's supernatural creatures in these books. There's werewolves, there's um, vampires, blah, 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 blah. And she can negate supernatural powers um, with her touch. So, but what we also find out is her father is not there. She is. She has a mother. We don't know her father. We know about her father being a, a, an Italian. It's very scandalous. Um but he's been gone since she was uh, since before she was born, I believe. And what we find out also, find out later, is that two soulless cannot be together in proximity. Um, it's like they repel each other. They they cannot stand to be near each other. And so we find out that's why her father left is because a soulless his child was being born soulless and they could not be together. Um, so we don't really, you know, we never really knew much about him. So this is a story about him. Uh, it is set in it directly in Cairo and uh, doing his work as an undercover agent. Um, so like I said, this one, it was good. Uh, it was one of the adventure stories. Not bad. If you are a fan of the Parasol Protectorate, you will definitely enjoy it. Uh, it's very well written. It's very well done. Um, and there's some, if I, like I said, it's been a long time since I've read the, the soulless books, but if I remember correctly, um, there was a, a scenario with a mummy, and I'm, I'm wondering if this is where it got started. Um, but that was the Gerald Carriger story. It's a good story. Um, but I want to move on to the next one, which is The Angel of Khan El Khalili by P. Jelly Clark. Uh, this is a story where there are angels in Cairo. They appeared some 40 years before uh, the story started, and... So there are, <laughs> there was a Sudanese mystic who created fantastic machines that, and I thought this was really interesting, who's fanta- this is from the book, whose fantastic machines had sent magic pouring into the world with the force of an unstoppered sea. And this, one of the things this pulled was djinn, um, but angels also came. And there's one particular angel there in Cairo who will grant wishes, Kind of, um, but in the way that these things always work, it's not the way you expect. Be careful what you wish for. She wants a deep, 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 the ultimate truth from this young girl, Aisha, who comes to her wanting a favor, wanting help. Um, Or not Aisha, I'm sorry. It's Aisha's sister that comes wanting help because Aisha had been injured. Um, And this is, let's see, it's 1912. um, And there was a factory fire there in Egypt, in Cairo. Um, a women's, 
they it's a dress factory, a, a women's ladies dress factory, and um, it's staffed largely with women. And there is a fire, a terrible, terrible, terrible fire. Um, it said it tore through the dress factory and it might have killed everyone there. But Aisha, amazing person that she was, she saved a lot of people, but she ended up almost dead herself. And so, and so her sister wants to save her life. I mean, of course, her sister wants to save her life. So she goes to appeal to this angel for help um, to save Aisha. And what we ultimately will find out is the the deeper truth that the angel is looking for in this instance is that the sister started the fire. Um, she didn't mean for this to happen. She was trying to. Um, she was trying to do something else. She was trying because the factory had really unsafe working conditions, and they knew nothing was ever going to change. So they started the fire, but they didn't. Her and her friend, they didn't mean for this to happen. Um, but what I, a couple things I thought was interesting, when um, the sister is talking to the angel and she's saying how uh, the year is it's 1912, it's not 1812. Girls can go to school and become civil engineers, and they can get you know jobs not in. Uh, the dress factory. So there, there are some more opportunities for these girls, you know, in 1912 in Cairo, besides just working in the factory. But um, maybe you've noticed this too. I keyed into this pretty quick. Um, this is really reminiscent as far as the circumstances of the fire itself and the factory and the fact that the doors were locked. This is the triangle factory, the triangle shirtwaist factory fire in Cairo. I mean, I believe the triangle factory fire was in 1912 as well. Um, obviously, it was in New York. It was terrible. And let's see. Google never wants to cooperate with me. I wrote a paper about this, but I still can't remember. 1911, the deadliest industrial... It's still considered one of the deadliest uh, industrial disasters uh, in America. It was horrible. It was 146 garment workers, 123 of which were women. Um, it was a terrible, terrible thing, and it started... I think they said it's, it's believed it started with a cigarette butt in a, in a scrap bin because they weren't allowed to leave their tables. Um, and so that's what this made me think of, this, this idea of... Women who didn't want to be married um, because they didn't have to. It's 1912. They don't have to find, you know, a, a sweetheart or a husband and, you know, get married. They can they can go to university. They can get a job in a factory. They can, uh, what did you say? They can become historians or barristers or alchemy uh, if your family can afford it. But if not, you work at the factory. But it still was hard work. It was terrible work. It was abusive work. And... Even, I mean, the, the Triangle Fire was bad, but it wasn't the only terrible thing like that that ever happened, and either before or after, and has continued to happen if we've, you know, remember news out of uh, places like India where this has happened in the last few years, and it continues to happen. Um, and actually, as far as the Triangle Fire goes, the men that owned that factory would go on after the trial and all of that they would build another one and try to do the same exact thing with the fucking doors as just uh, rich people okay so the angel of Khan el khalili uh, it was a beautiful story it really was I, I like i said i thought it was it was really cool that it was 
you know, these steampunk fantastic machines created magic or poured magic into the world um, and brought all of these creatures to it. Now, they do say that they don't know what the angels are. The angels just kind of showed up. Um, and I think they were mechanical. They, they sounded really neat when she opened up. It was was really cool. Um, so that is the angel of Khan El Khalili. The next one is Mock the Midnight Bell by Sarah Caulfield. And I, <laughs> I liked this one. This one was really good. Um, this is the one that takes place in England, but it's about um, museum uh, and artifacts and how one of the characters decided that uh, she is going to start um, single hand. Well, not single handedly. She has a partner, but she's going to go on a campaign of repatriation. She starts stealing artifacts from the museum and sending them back to Egypt. But what she inadvertently does is uh, gain the attention of the gods of Isis and Osiris and Set. Uh, she gains their attention, and they come to see her in England um, because they need help. So that one, that, this was a really good story. The one of the things that I liked about it um, was their the unconventional relationships or the idea of what makes us family is family what we're born to, or is family what we create um, when what we're born to doesn't always add up doesn't you know doesn't always give us what we need um, so what actually constitutes family and I, th- I thought it was well done. Um, the other thing that I liked so much about this, it covers the idea um, that we've talked about before about tulpas and spirit forms and creatures that are brought into being because we thought of them. We don't think of them because they exist. They exist because we think of them. And that's kind of the idea uh, that Osiris and Isis and Set reveal that they say, um, and this is from the book. One of them says, "We were born. We are born when a generation believes in us, not just in what we were, not the wall freezes or mummy curses or fascination with long dead organs and jars. We are only what we represent. It's when a generation falls in love with an ideal. Somewhere they break us out of the pantry again, like forgotten wedding china from a marriage gone sour, and they put us out to play at believing again." So the idea that the gods exist, but they don't exist continuously all the time. They come and they go based on people believing in them. Um, So if we don't believe in them, they fade away. And for whatever reason, we come across the image, we start to believe again. And so they are reborn and they come back into being, they come back into the world and then they'll go away again when when belief dies, and you know the rise and fall of religion across the world. It's and, and and the the depth of belief that people can have. I don't think it's a. It's not so far out of the realm of possibility that a thought form or you know a god could this that something like this could be created out of the depth of our beliefs. I don't think that's a weird idea, but. I'm kind of a weird person on the whole, so, you know, what does that say about me? Okay, the next story was, um, is Worthless Remains by Jonathan Green. Uh, it's kind of your standard British Egyptological adventure fair. Again, not a bad story. Um, it was a good story, just not um, 
I'm saving room for some other stories that I want to talk about. So Worthless Remains, it was good. Uh, like I said, adventurous, very exciting. Um, the next one is The Lights of Dendera by Tiffany Trent. And this one, <laughs> this one was really, really interesting. Um, Tesla, Nikola Tesla and an African-American um, singer. And this was turn of the century. I believe this is taking place. And she's a singer, um, an opera singer, but she's not the star of the show. She's not the, the prima. She is um, one of the others in the cast. But she is approached by a man who wants her to sing at a very special event, um, and Nikola Tesla will be at the event. And she's, she's developed this fascination with Tesla, uh, a very deep and abiding interest in it. And I like the way that Tiffany Trent works in the little weirdities that Tesla had about the ladies. Well, about anybody, about being touched. Um, he had some oddities and some germaphobe issues with the touching. Um, so in this story, this opera singer, Miss Ames, and Nikola Tesla um, are approached by this odd man who invites them to a special event where she's going to sing. Uh, they end up getting transported back in time, and that is because the man that has approached her is actually Anubis, and he needs Tesla to light the lights of Dendera um, to keep out the Hittites. Um, we are transported literally back. They are transported literally back to ancient Egypt. Um, because they need help. They need Tesla's help in ancient Egypt, and if this was a graphic novel, it would be amazing. Um, it was a really good story, and the reason... I, I, I thought it was really beautiful, and for Miss Ames, when you know she goes back, and so she goes back to ancient Egypt, and suddenly she's surrounded by all of these people who look like her. Um, you know, and... It was it's a situation of finding an acceptance and being among people that are like you, or at least that look like you, in the most unexpected and the weirdest of places. And for her, that was getting thrown back to um, ancient Egypt with Nikola Tesla to help light the lights of Pandera to stop the Hittites. Um, but one of the passages that I thought was really good, she says, uh, it was even harder to believe that my ancestors had come from a place like this a place so serene and civilized, a place brimming with food and culture. Among the many things I had realized was that I had felt a deep shame, which I masked with defiance back in New York for who and what I was. In my depths, I had bought into the message that my people were savages and that I would have to be the most civilized of all to make up for the lack of my ancestors. And anyone who has studied slavery in America um, knows what this is talking about, the, the way that the slaves were reduced in the minds of uh, the white, white Americans, the way that they were reduced to a level just barely above animals, if even that, because if we can dehumanize something, it makes it easier to subjugate and control and abuse it and not think about the cost of what it is that you're doing, the actual human cost of this, um, and so for, you know, a, for a woman of color at the turn of the century to suddenly, you know, who has been trying to 
be respected and be treated as a human being for her to suddenly find herself in this place where everyone looks like her and it's beautiful and it's civilized and you know it's it's cultured and it's progressive and it's literate and it's intelligent and it's obviously in the past so it obviously it is where possibly where she came from where her people came from at some point and so to see this to see this definite disconnect between what was being taught about African Americans or Africans and about the civilization that was actually taking place that was actually being lived would be jarring it would be strange and I imagine that it would feel amazing I can't even imagine how that would feel but it was it was really I was when I started the story I'm like okay really <laughs> but it was beautiful it was just it was really well done um, I liked it a lot now the next one is Ushapti by Zan Lee and this one oh my god this story um, I cried I totally cried like a little girl um, this takes place entirely in ancient Egypt um, with a man who works for an artisan who works for the pharaoh. Pharaoh is old. He's falling apart. Um, he's not in good shape. He's His body has betrayed him, you know, as age will do. And he doesn't want to go into his tomb with such a wrecked... He doesn't want to go into the underworld with such a terrible, terrible form. He wants to go into the underworld mighty and strong. So he talks to his tomb maker about creating a new body for him. And this is one of those situations where talking to and asking him to do something is, you know, it's a nice way to put it. Uh, it's made very clear to the tomb maker that um, he's got to create a viable and functional body for Pharaoh to uh, be trans to be put into in the afterlife. Um, and, you know, rulers... Men in positions of power, they can make weird demands sometimes, crazy demands um, that people feel they have no choice but to go along with. Um, I don't have any idea what that is like. That's not like anything like that would happen in America in 2018. But so this story was really, it was beautiful, but it was sad because as the tomb maker is creating these bodies, um, you creates the body out of wood and the pharaoh is not pleased because it's clinky and it's wooden and it won't move on its own. He's got to add pulleys and he's got to do this and he's got to do that. Um, and all the while the tomb maker, his wife is pregnant and she's about to give birth. And it was what we believe was a, a fully arranged marriage that she had no choice in. We find out later that she did actually choose him uh, because she did care for him. But as will happen in prehistoric times and even in modern times, um, women can die in childbirth and... What the pharaoh's last complaint about the body had been um, was the skin, because he had tried different things to make skin for the wooden form, and pharaoh was not pleased and was going to... Uh, he, he had openly threatened the two-maker's wife and unborn child, um, but because the wife dies in childbirth, she gives her husband one last gift before she dies. Yeah, it's her skin. Um, and pharaoh's happy. With this body that has been created for him. And it's, I just, I, I put on my, because I always keep notes with this stuff. And I put in my notes, I have no words. Because I didn't even know what to say. 
Um, but one thing that the wife said that I thought was really beautiful and that did stick with me, as she said, fear doesn't change a person. Fear shows who a person truly is. And she's right. That is very right. Fear doesn't make us into something else. Fear only reveals what was inside of us. Um, there are people in my life that are very fearful and have expounded some very hateful views in you know recent years. And I've been wrestling with myself about how this happened and did, were they always this way and I didn't see it or is this something new? But really that fear is just revealing what was in there the whole time. Um, and that's hard to deal with. But yeah, this story was, was really, and again, there's your Ushapti um, reference, but it was, it was a very beautiful story. Like I said, <laughs> it was harsh. <laughs> and, you know, the mortuary, the mortuary scenes were a little rough, but it was, it was actually a beautiful love story. Um, now this next one, um, it's called the thermodynamics and, or the remittance men by Chaz Brinchley. Um, this one is about a lot of a, a cluster of, uh, dissolute young British men in Cairo. Um, it's kind of a, what I put, what I noted was casual colonialism, um, where they're hanging out there because their family doesn't want them. Their families don't want them just because they're, you know, in some cases, second sons or, you know, they're just, they're wastrels and debauched and they do nothing um, of value. So they all go hang out in Cairo where their families won't bother them. And I had to look up remittance men and what that, that actually was a phrase. It means their families are just sending them money um, to stay alive and to, you know, live their lives, but there are a way where they really can't be an embarrassment to the family. Um, and there's a whole situation going on with an artifact or some artifacts that need to stay hidden um, that should not be in the hands of the British. But like I said, it's, it's the, there's the, the very clear um, casual colonialism, not unintentionally on the author's part. It was there. It's very intentional. Um, you can see that the way that they treat it, the way they treat Cairo and how they feel about it um, as far as, you know, being British and this is their city. Um, and one thing that they said that um, one of the characters said, um, he says, even those of us who only live here because we're not wanted at home, we exploit that distance and the opportunity it gives us to live in our own little mockery of English life without penalty of English law. It's shameful. Britannia wouldn't believe it, but it's true. Her rule is not benign for any of the native peoples. We see that best, perhaps, who live here on the margins of empire, less engaged with it, disinterested observers, if you like, merely taking advantage. And that's the essence of British colonialism right there wrapped up in a neat little bow. That is it. If you were living in London in the 19th century and just read of these exploits in the paper about the wonderful things that the British are, you know, that are ta that's happening, you know, overseas in India and Africa and in Egypt and here and in there and... They're bringing civilization to the masses and bringing civilization to society, you know, to the, the savages and making everything better. And if you're, you know, sheltered living in the middle of London and you've never been anywhere off of the out of England, maybe you really don't understand. You really don't know. You don't see it. You don't know what is actually happening there. But when you are living there, you are not part of the military. You are, you know, just a casual observer, a part of this empire, you are living there, you are seeing it, you are actually in the thick of this colonialism and the things that are happening, um, that's when you begin to understand that the rule is not benign, that it does not 
benefit the native peoples. It is not for their best interest. It is for the people back home to say, look at the glories of the British Empire or America or France or the Belgians in the Congo with what they did. Any, this not, I don't want to be <laughs> British specific about that. Bad things have been done by all of these great nations. Um, but it's different being here or being safely at home and reading about it or watching it you know, on the news or whatever and actually being there in the middle of it it's a very different thing, and so that's I, I liked the way it was described. It was also a really neat little story with the scarabs that these little scarabs that, when they were in proximity to each other, they would like come on <laughs> and try to share information. It was it looked like they nobody really knew what they were doing. They would share information and they would turn and face the pyramid <laughs> pyramids and like like they were transmitting something, but nobody actually knew what was really happening. That was never explain short story you know you don't get all the explanations um now the next one was lucky at cards by david barnett and this one is all about the slavery um a texas well this it's texas slavers um but a man gets into um a sticky wicket with a slaver um owes him some money and because he's got an airship which he actually acquired through nefarious means but he's got an airship so he is pressed into service uh, going over to the Ivory Coast to pick up some fresh slaves and bring them back. Um, and that will absolve his debt. Now, while he is doing that, he is asked on a stopover, he is asked to take this woman to um, further in in order to uh, go back to her family's um, village because she has an arranged marriage waiting for her. And the airship captain, he is very entranced with her, but he's got this thing he's got to do. Um, and so this story, it's its literally, it's about the cost of slavery. Um, it's about slavery. It's about the choices that we make, which is very important. You know, when she asks him, um, do you consider your life to be worth more than those of the free men you will kidnap? And, you know, when we do something in order to save our own life at the cost of how many other lives, um, we have to consider how much our own life is worth in relation to someone else. I mean, there's the idea that no one life is worth more than another, but is one life worth more than five lives or you know, 50 or 500? How do you tally the cost of that? He wants to not be killed by the Texas slavers. So he's going to go ravage the Ivory Coast and grab men, women, and children who were happily living their lives <laughs> so that his life is safe. How is that fair? How is that right? Um, and obviously people made these decisions or we wouldn't have had slavery the way that we did in America. But, you know, we, we have to weigh the cost of what it is that we're doing versus how it's going to affect other people and everyone around us. Um, and one of the things that they say is no one owned the Ivory Coast, though the, both the French and the Portuguese had dabbled there. Well, no one owned it save the people who had lived on the Ivory Coast for countless generations, of course, but they didn't seem to count to the Europeans. That meant it was also one of the few remaining places the Texas slavers frequented. So because nobody had laid claim to it, except the people who lived there, it was okay to go there and take the people who lived there. Um, I don't know. Human beings, the way that we can qualify and there's <laughs> some of the things that ha especially when it comes to the slavery arguments and um, 
white supremacy arguments. There are some Cirque du Soleil level acrobatics going on with these things, and I just I don't understand it. Now, the so that was a really good one. Um, the next one is called Sun River by Nizi Shaw. And I was very excited about this one because it's, um, it's connected to Everfair, which we talked about last summer. Please go see the Neasy Shawl Everfair episode. I think it was episode two. Um, it was really, really good. And it um, involves Mwadi, the daughter of the king. So the princess is in Egypt, uh, in Cairo. She's learning some things. She is learning how to travel through... Birds, um, telepathically, obviously. She, spirit guides, I guess would be the best equivalent of what she's doing. She goes into a trance and she can ride the birds. And what I thought was actually really interesting is that she does it with more than one. Um, at one point near the end of the book, she's doing it with three. I think it was three birds. She can take a whole passel of birds and she can see through all of them and control some things. Um, it's not easy, obviously, but... It was, like I said, it's a little bit of a, a continuation of Everfair, um, and it involves the actress that we loved so much from Everfair, or rather the performer, Rima Bailey. Um, she was in it. Now, the one thing that I thought was, there was one part that, like I said, some of these, sometimes we don't think of, as as white readers, as white People, there's things that we don't always consider, we don't think about. We know, and, I, and you know, this, is, this has been borrowed before. There are things that we don't see because we don't see them every day, or they're not part of our purview. Um, what was interesting was when Rima and Mawadi are at their palace. Um, one of her brother's white friends, her brother's got some, her brother's got some really terrible friends. One of his white friends just sees Mawadi and Rima out in the garden, and he doesn't realize who they are and he's calling them names and he uses that word um, and calls them whores and then realizes who they are and when Rima uh, when when that that insult is repeated and his name is Scranforth and he gets very upset and upset and he says you oughtn't say such words and they're like well you did so it's okay for him to say that to what he thought was a low-class black woman uh but when he realized who she was and when she says the word, that's not done. That's 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 improper. Um, so those double standards that exist, that it's okay for the you know, that it's okay for the one person to say it, but when the lady repeats it, oh, we can't do that. And <laughs> the other part that I really liked is when she's asking him something and he's like it's difficult to describe the details of these things to a lady, don't you know? Scranforth twisted, twisted his mouth into a line as irregular as the brim of his nervously wrung hat. Mwadi wondered if what kept him from talking clearly about the situation was his own lack of understanding. Um, and anyone has, who's been mansplained to, and, you know, I, I think we can, um, we, we can all, <laughs> no matter what color we are, women of all color can understand that one. Um, so this was a, it was a nice little, like a little addendum just to, um, Everfair, um, because, uh, you know, I would like to have seen a sequel to Everfair, but, you know, writers are busy and it's not always, you know, they may, they, maybe they said what they felt they needed to say in the one book, but I would like more, but moving on. Now, the next one is called The Sun Shall Lie Across Us Like Gold, and, I'm going to make an attempt <laughs> at the author's name. I don't want to tear it up. 
because I actually have great respect. The story was beautiful. But the name is her name is Benjanoon Sridown Kai Cow. I apologize for my pronunciation on that. There's no way I can get my my mouth around that one. But oh my god, the story was so beautiful. I can't even. I just I can't. I ran out of cans with this one. Ran out of cans with this one. Um, it's beautiful. It's queer. It's got excellent female characters. Um, it is about. A well, I guess technically a terrorist, and she runs from Cairo, and she is hiding out in she's hiding out in Bangkok, and ends up coming into contact with a woman who appears to be a leader in the city or someone of high regard. Um, her name is Elm Rampa, and it's a Madiha Wahab who is on the run, so she takes refuge in Bangkok. Apparently, she was an engineer, um, a creator, and her automatons were pretty gnarly and caused quite a lot of damage. Um, there's a battle between the French and the English, um, and so that's why she's hiding out now. She's gone. But the interplay between the two women, um, I believe they meet three times in the story, and the interplay is its beautiful. The conversation is is tight, and it's very tense and you just you hang on it and it's it's beautiful and it's realistic and we find out that Alan Rampa had a partner before um and when she talks about it she says um that it's it's commented upon how you know the the fact that she did have openly have a, a female partner and she says for women to be wife and wife the lady holds up the ring and laughs of course not what a world that would be what a paradise such things are at best ignored or thought non-existent. Still, we had de- decades together and accomplished great deeds, but that's past now. It is my twilight, and what remains for me is to maintain her legacy, defend the country for which she died. And so, Rampa is continuing on. She's lost her partner, but she's continuing on her legacy and her, her desire to defend this country. And it's like I said, the interplay between the women was was gorgeous. It was really well written. Um, it was very heart wrenching. So that one, I really liked that one. That made me very happy. Um, now this last one before we go to break is the word of Menemhotep. It's by George Mann, and it is a Newbery and Hobbes um, story. If you're familiar with the Newbery and Hobbes series that Mann writes, uh, the steampunk series, I. Full disclosure, I never really got into them. Um, I read, I think, the first one or part of the first one. It didn't click for me. They're not bad at all, and they're very popular. Um, didn't click for me. The story was good. Um, <laughs> one of the things that I... And I'm wondering if Man put this in because of who the story was being... Or for the for this anthology. <laughs> but one of the dead people in the book, uh, I believe it opens up with him, a dead archaeologist. His name is Matthias Bright. Um, and Matthew Bright is the editor of our book, so I don't know if that was on purpose. I thought that was kind of funny. Um, and the other thing that just killed me um, about this was the steampunk mummies and the description of them. They were shambling corpses, their flesh embalmed and dried, smooth and stretched across their decaying bones. Their eyes were missing, their sockets dry and hollow, staring and unseeing. They were wrapped in trailing bandages and adorned with necklaces bearing eight-legged scarabs. 
They were mummies, either plundered from their resting place in far-off sands or somehow recreated here on British shores in a gross parody of the funeral rites of the ancients. Their skeletons had been wired to brass supports, their joints fixed with servos, and they lumbered in a terrible semblance of life, powered by the same technology that had driven the tiny scarab automata. So we've got steampunk mummies, which was, that was pretty cool. Um, I can totally get down with that one. So that is the first half, the first few stories in the book. So we are going to pause here, take a musical break. We're going to hear some advertisements from some friends of mine. And then we will come back and go on to the second half of the story or the book, as it were. So I will see you guys in just a little bit. We've just discovered a very rare bit of audio from former Prime Minister Winston Churchill. Let's have a listen. I, Winston Churchill, wholeheartedly believe that the Clockwork Cabaret is the finest example of steampunk radio programming. Never before have I heard anything quite so marvelous, and I doubt I shall ever hear anything like it again. Calpurnia, continue on your journey, broadcasting your marvelous music, and sail on to glory. If you would like to find out more about this program, Please check out clockworkcabaret.com or clockworkcabaret.podbean.com or follow us on Twitter at clockworkcabaret. That's C-L-O-C-K-W-R-K Cabaret. Hello, it's me again. Your hair couldn't hold me down. I'm back and smiling for what's to hear. Across town for several nights now, pacing with light cycles, streaks of neon off a kite tail. I run a nice route, but I feel my heart fading. Reminiscing past rides with Tatsuo and Kaneda. Yeah, and before we meet the maker, one of these nights, you find out what you're made of. You can fight it till your last breath collapses, or accept this is you and let them things out and abash it. I'm on. I'm on. I'm on. River City to Riverside, look alive. I cast shadows in the night from a neon mad sign. Billy and Jimmy Lee watched the six back in 99. Fight a flight divide, now it's only fight to fight. The life is fight, swinging left pipes for a righteous price. I ain't for sale though. Keep the offer, even an extremist can't be bought in the crack of dime joggers. I write lines between day walkers and midnight marauders, prepping hooks like ruthless Robbie, motherfucking Lawler. Don't know what y'all heard, the pearls are hard and center. But if she can slow dance on a floor full of phantasmal killers, then I let her wear my hoodie, come and fly a shotgun. Silver bullets in the glove compartment, Billy Compton and company, come with me. Run your keys, your jewels, I've seen things you can't unbelieve. Spades and spades, but only me rolls up my sleeve. Just an American saber wolf on these London streets. No one thing. Don't pick a fight with the man who's died twice and doesn't believe in the Lord of life. 50 50 my norm. You don't want to see my risky. Just tell him that I'm coming and I'm bringing hell with me.
Death in a full moon, can't heal. Standing on the city landfill, sipping stab and kill. Nursing old wounds, catching new feels. It's just another day with the devil in blue hills. So I'm out. Nola, Brooklyn, Cleveland, Shantown, Metro City, hands up and come out. St. Paul, Scotland, I, Detroit, Argonne, put them in the sky. Steampunk, a Victorian goth, a weird west enthusiast, a sky pirate, or just steam curious. If so, then join the Texas Steampunk Connection as we review and enjoy steampunk books, movies, comics, games, films, and events all over the great state of Texas. Come along with your hosts, Flavio, Erica, and Thax, as we enjoy steampunk adventures and share our discoveries with you. Something, 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 hats, corsets, boots, etiquette, pistachios, a teapot, bollocks. Find us on Facebook and fanboytv.com or wherever you find podcasts. <laughs> Goggles, gear, something, something, and always, always mind, mind your, your gauges. gauges. The year is 1885, but not one that would be familiar to you. Message for you, sir. You know, it is tiresome having the world's greatest detective as one's mother. Don't be silly. What's the word? I have a half dozen armed with cutlasses. Cutlasses? These fine gentlemen behind us? Yes, father. You and Gwendolyn deal with them? Yes, father. Ha! 
Hurrah, target practice. No guns, you silly girl. This is an airship. <coughs> Gwendolyn, are you all right, my dear? Cyril just knocked out my swordsman. <coughs> the continued security and stability of the Empire relies on your efforts. So, you know who I am. I do. That's why I took your stick. Weapons out, men. <laughs> but he's gone. Numbskulls, idiots. We mustn't let him escape. What is our next ritual? Traditionally, it is walking out. All right. Hang on. Oh, my. Oh, Albert, you're not a thing. We are much amused. Join us in one week as we once again visit with the first family of the realm, Browse. And we are back, my literary listeners. I hope you enjoyed that. That was New Gods by Toussaint, featuring Molly Dean and Chirsty Ridning. And that new promo that we had in there, um, I just had some communication with the individuals that make Brass, the podcast. And that was a a short trailer they had made for their season one, and they are uh, now actually on season two. It's being released every three weeks, so you should go give them a shot. I actually just found them myself when they contacted me, and I think they're pretty good. So go give them a listen. We can add them into the collective. One of us. Okay, anyway, moving on. Um, the next story is Silver Linings. It's by T. Morris and Pip Ballantyne. And if you're familiar with the Ministry of Peculiar Occurrences, that's what this one is. Uh, it's an MPO story. Again, not bad. They are good at what they do. They write good stories. Um, but it's the standard exciting adventure fair. Uh, so we're going to move past that one. Still recommend it. Now, the one after that is Antonia and Cleopatra by Matthew Bright. Yes, Matthew Bright that edited the book. And again, uh, it falls under the standard adventure. But it was it was a lot of fun. It's ladies and it's sassy, sassy mother and daughter uh, and airships and you know, entranced British officers and brothels in the middle of Cairo. It's very, it's all very dirty, and it was a lot of fun. I actually really enjoyed it. So check that one out, too. Um, But we are going to move on to the Museum of Unlikely Survivors by Rod Duncan, friend of the show, Rod Duncan. Um, We like Rod Duncan. He wrote the Fall of the Gaslit Empire series that... um, we discussed a few months ago. Now, this one is not connected to the Gaslit Empire series that I could tell. Uh, it looked to be, or it read, I don't know why I always say looked. I took it to be standard issue London, um, not the special Gaslit Empire London, but the Museum of Unlikely Survivors, it's what it sounds like. It's objects that had come close to extinction but still survived, and there's a mummy in the collection that seems to cause weird luck, good luck, bad luck, something weird. Um, and so someone offers to, a doctor uh, offers to, sorry about the crackling, by the way, um, just me, really quick. I have a wireless headset now instead of using the microphone that I've been using. I've been using this one because it's a little easier for me. But I also fidget a lot, so sometimes I whack into it or I, I move it around. So apologies on that. Getting back to the Museum of Unlikely Survivors, um, there is a weird mummy. Nobody knows who the mummy was, uh, just this unknown mummy. And so someone 
offers to test its luck with this automaton. Um, it's going to be brought in and left alone with the mummy overnight. It all turns out to be a really, um, really elaborate con job in order to steal uh, an emerald from the collection, I believe it was. Um, but the the story, the the draw of the story, or what I thought was really interesting about it, um, it's the idea that the servants see everything. The servants, the cleaning people, uh, the chambermaids, the cooks, the laundresses, the valets, whatever, they see everything, and they are the people that are most often overlooked, and no one pays nearly enough attention to them, and they are discounted uh, you know, because they're low base jobs, uh, they're is equated with their intelligence. And we shouldn't be doing that because historically they're the people that see the most and know more than anyone. Sometimes they literally know where the bodies are buried. And so Rosa, the cleaning, she says she's only the cleaning woman, but she knows that collection like the back of her hand. And so she knows, knows when something has gone missing that nobody, or that has been replaced. Nobody else had noticed it. Um, because she knew the place. She cleaned it every day. So, And she was actually, when she figured out the con job and she went to see the woman responsible for it, and boy, she she laid it all out like fucking Sherlock Holmes, what had happened and, you know, the, the actual story of what had been done. And the woman was so impressed that she hired her, um, which I thought was pretty cool. And also, Mr. Duncan um, sprinkles footnotes throughout, and I'm a sucker for fictional stories that have fictional footnotes. I don't know why. It just always gets me like um, the Eaters of the Dead, the Crichton book with the footnotes and all that. I just, I really dig on that. So this was a good one. Um, like I said, it was, uh, you know, museum robbery and some also some repatriation going on. Um, but like I said, don't discount the cleaning lady, man. They probably know your house better than you do. Um, and they see everything because especially I don't know I don't know that it's as calm well I'm, I'm sure it is with rich people but for a long time you didn't you know the servants you didn't see them the whole point of them was that you didn't see them that they were in the background doing all of the stuff that you didn't want to do they were invisible or they were supposed to be invisible that was the idea and so while they're busy being invisible and busy not being you know paid attention to they're picking up every one of your bad habits and every one of your misdeeds and every one of your secrets. And, you know, we need to pay more attention to the people around us. Um, that was my lesson from Rod Duncan's Museum of Unlikely Survivors. Probably more than he intended for me to get out of it, but that's okay. Um, now, this next one was Jabari and the Giant by Christopher Parvin. Um this one was really, really interesting. In this one, um, this is an, an alternate uh, world. There's an Egyptian empire. There's a pan-Atlantic confederacy. A treaty has been signed. Um, there was a war. Now it's over. But the gods have literally returned to Earth. There was a final battle between Horus and Set. Um, Horus won. And Seth's body was fed to Sobek, the crocodile, so that he could never be raised again. Um, it was really crazy and really well done. Um, it's not even, it's one of those that's really hard to explain. Um, the One of the parts that I, I cut out, um, 
It said the earliest automatons were a gift from Toth. Here, these gleaming bronze plate miracles with ibis heads that towered over the populace offered water to the strange, pale-skinned people from the northern colonies. Men in long embroidered robes like birds of paradise sold beer and clockwork scarabs with lapis chips, lapis chip eyes. Priests with thick coal and glittering metal amulets stood guard by the turnstiles so the area didn't overcrowd. So it's oh, it's total steampunk Egypt, um, and I like the the northern colonies. So <laughs> looks like um, Egypt spread out and, and and colonized all on their own. Good for them. Um, so. This one was pretty cool. Um, like I said, it was it's one of those where there's so much going on and it is almost impossible to summarize, which is weird for a short story, but um, it was really good. I enjoyed that one a lot. Now, <laughs> this next one is called To Kill a God. Uh, it's by M.J. Lyons. And when I was listening, to, or when I was reading it, and as I'm reading it, I'm starting to feel like there is a definite Lovecraftian feel. If you've ever read Lovecraft's writing, you understand there's just a certain I don't know, there's like a heaviness to the story. It's hard to explain. Um, there's just a certain feel to Lovecraft. You know who he is. <laughs> and as I'm thinking, this is a really Lovecraftian, and then all of a sudden, I get to an old but intelligible translation of the text written by the mad Arab of Yemen. So there you go, Lovecraft. <laughs> so it is It is absolutely, most definitely a Lovecraftian story. Um, there's an elitist New England academic. There's a weird plague in Egypt. And um, it's essentially... They're raising an eldritch god, um, you know. And then once you get to the end of the story, um, there's a letter, and it ends with, "There's little good that can be learned from the ramblings of madmen." Yours truly, HPL Private Investigator, 66 College Street, Arkham, Massachusetts. So yeah, um, would it be steampunk without some Lovecraft? Probably not got to put it in there somewhere um the next story the infernal by ann jensen this one i still don't really know what to think it was purely egyptian there was no anglo influence um it appeared to be someone with locked in syndrome which is absolutely terrifying to me which might be why i had trouble with this one um i i hate reading or watching things about locked in syndrome it freaks me out so bad it's that is i have claustrophobia really bad um and whether it's you know weird or not, I have that I have that irrational fear of also of being buried alive, and for me, locked in syndrome would be the worst kind of being buried alive. So that's the feeling that I got from this. I mean, it was beautifully written. It was absolutely gorgeously written, um, but I was left not sure what to think on that one. Now, on the next one, Imhotep's Dog by John Morley. Essentially, what we have is Dr. Evil in Egypt. <laughs> Literally, this guy, he creates the acid bath murder machine. I mean, come on. Um, he's, there's a clockwork death collar with a combination lock. Um, and, well, let's see. Uh, the description of Imhotep, clever enough to have designed the Great Pyramid and created the first clockwork heart. Clever enough to turn the complex machinery inside his chest to the job of immortality. And though the rest of his body had decayed like any other mortal around the scarab-like device that kept it moving, his mind, keen and cruel as ever, had continued inventing the machines that secured his power in Egypt, second only to the pharaoh. Um, so, 
<laughs> there's some crazy ass machinery in this story. It was insane. Um, and the slave, Imhotep's dog, it's in reference to his slave, wins the day with pie. His wife's pie wins the day. So that was that was pretty funny. Um, and actually, I moved pretty quick through these. Wow, I kind of nailed these out, didn't I? Um, but there's a reason for that because we're coming up to the one that I'm really excited about. Now, this one, this next one, but for the pieces he left behind, uh, it's by Catherine Tobler. It is airships and lady sky pirates, and there are maps on skin. Um, it's it's exciting. It's 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 like I said. It's it's more of the standard um, adventure fare. Very exciting. Um, the overriding feeling that I got from it was um, grief, a grieving you know woman trying to overcome her grief and and, and find her love and figure out what happens now. Um, and those are always a little harder for me too um, as I get older. So that one was was really really good. I enjoyed that one a lot. Um, now, this next one, I was super excited to read, um, and it is The Copper Scarab by Kay Tempest Bradford, and man, it did not disappoint, and I am so fucking excited because she's making a series. Um, it is Comet. Remember we talked about Comet? It's Comet against their ancient enemies, the Amorites. Um, <laughs> and there's a library, and there's supreme librarians, and there are ladies, and there's lady engineers. This is a matriarchal culture, man. The Kemet, it's 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 the the women are the sisters are all right. The ladies are in charge. Um, it was really good. It was really really good. Um, it was a woman who was initially from Kemet. She left. She was went into marriage. Um, she came back to save her, to save Komet against the Amorites. Um, now, the, li- the Library of the Horizon, man, it was incredible. But all of these women come together in order to save their country. And the um, it's totally and completely unconnected to Am- Anglo steampunk in any way. It is not dependent upon it at all. This is purely and completely Egyptian steampunk by K. Tempest Bradford and is gorgeous. But um, one of the, the, the steampunk aspect comes in. There are copper scarabs. Um, they're an engineering marvels. They were used to build the Great Pyramids. Uh, the ancient, first used to build the ancient pyramids. And they're, now they were being recreated in this current book to the contemporary book time. Uh, and it's what it says is, the outer wings are designed to capture the heat and light of the sun, channeling it here where there's a reservoir of water. And uh, they say heat and pressure builds until it becomes steam, which travels through the tubes to the legs and other parts. That's how it moves. And in this world that they're in, um, scholars and engineers had had to go into hiding uh, because of the Amorites. And like I said, the, it's, uh, there was an interesting distinction between um, the engineer, the, the women, the engineers as women, and the, 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 the sister engineers and the brother stonemasons. I thought that was cool. Um, but what she says about it herself, because I followed her on Twitter for a long time, um, and I like her a lot. I like a lot of things she has to say. And what she says is this series is Afro-Retro-Futurist, a term coined by Neezy Shaw, 
She defines it as a blend of Afrofuturism, a movement focused on African contributions to, perspectives on, and presence in the future, and retrofuturism, a revisioning of the past, including elements of its future and sometimes elements of our own future as well. I'm incorporating Afrofuture elements because I want to see my people depicted as technological and cultural innovators in the past, present, and future. I am representing Egypt in this era as an African country populated by black people with a culture connected to and influenced by other African cultures, nearby African cultures. Um, and she's got, she says she's got reams of research and she's, she is working really, really hard on this. And uh, the retrofuturist elements are centered around the, the house-sized copper scarabs that run on steam. And she says she's using their development as a framework to explore the cultural, social, and spiritual movements that follow in the wake of upheaval, ethnic conflict, and technical innovation in dynastic Egypt. Um, it's This is just a short story, and it is fucking brilliant. Um, she's the culture she's crafted, she says, as a series. It's, also, it's matrifocal with widespread acceptance of multiple sexualities and roles for people of multiple genders. Um, it's, she intends to challenge gender roles in the ancient world and explore what a matrifocal, technological, and unquestionably African Egypt can look like. She intends to do it with queer black women as her protagonists. Um, it's off to a good start, man. It is just, it is a beautiful story. Um, like I said, it is completely separate from the, all those people that keep saying, well, steampunk is Victorian London. No, it's not. And Ms. Bradford has we've we've had plenty of exam we've had a lot of examples over the, the time that I've been doing the show. I've tried to bring lots and lots of lots of examples and her story it, it gives me the same giggle and glee that Ken Lewis did because it, it is not Anglo in any way. It is purely and completely of the culture of that culture and of that time and working with the with the elements that were you know much like Ken Liu and the silk punk and the using the elements that were in and the resources that were in that environment she is using the resources of that environment to amazing effect um and I actually would would really love to see the scarabs building the pyramid I don't know um it was beautiful it's a good story. Uh, she is, like I said, she is developing it into a series, and I am so there for that. Uh, she did a gorgeous job with it, and I, I think it's going to be well done. Right now, she's working on getting funding to go to uh, to go actually go to Egypt, um, and I think I've put. No, I did not put her contact you can find her you can find all most of these guys most of these authors on twitter um a lot of them i know neasy shaw is k tempest bradford rod duncan matthew bright is on twitter um gail Carriger is on twitter they are some pretty cool people um go see what kind of work they're doing but like i said this was the story this the copper scare was the one that i, I was i've really been excited to read um it was the 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 out of a out of a, a really 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 good book. This was the, you know that that final mm, factor to it. This was a very good book. Like I said, I know I I didn't give a lot of coverage to some of the stories, and again, that's not because they didn't they weren't worthy. Um, they just didn't have the issues that I like to cover. But they were good. All of these were 
superb and the the goal that I, I think in my untutored opinion, I think the goal that Bright had of getting a good spread of the adventure with the deeper social commentary, I think he 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 nailed it with these. Um I think he really he really got there. He provided something for everyone. The only complaint is the same complaint that I have with all anthologies, with all short stories, is that they're short stories. <laughs> I don't like short stories because they're short. I like, I want more. Um, and for some of these, like the Copper Scarab, it sounds like we're going to get more. Or um, with Neasy Shawls, uh, Sun River, we're going to, or you have Everfair, so there is more. Uh, you know, with the Silver Linings, it's Ministry of Peculiar Occurrence, you've got more. So some of these have more already built in or will soon. Uh, some of them don't. But they were all really, really good. Um, they were well done. I think there's something in there for everyone. And, you know, it, it's it's the range of Anglo and African and Egyptian. Um, and it's the range of sexualities. It, it covers, it runs the gamut. There's no one getting, I don't believe no one getting more attention than the other. Um, some of the stories just really knocked me on my ass, man. You know, this, the sun shall lie across us like gold. That was the one in Bangkok. That was gorgeous. Um, but they all have something important to say. Uh, they're all exciting. They're, you know, he, he did a good job. He really did. Uh, he should be very proud of his efforts. This is a good collection of authors. And hopefully, uh, not too far in the future, I will be able to do an episode dedicated to Kay Tempest Bradford and her amazing kick-ass Egyptian matriarchal librarians and engineers. I mean, come on. You had to know that I was going to play favorites with her. There's library. <laughs> There's badass lady librarians, so you had to know that um, that that was going to be the one that you know grabbed my attention the hardest. Um, it's librarians saving the day, protecting the world, protecting their world against these invading forces. I mean, come on, it's the theme of my entire goddamn show. So I, I highly recommend uh, the high blah. I have talked too much today. I highly recommend Clockwork Cairo. Uh, Matthew Bright's done a good job. Great authors, really good stories, something for everybody. Um, and, you know, after you've listened to this, read the book. And as usual, come find me on Twitter. Have a chat with me. Tell me what you think. Tell me if you agreed. Tell me if you didn't. I don't really have anybody doing that. I've been doing this for a while now, and I still don't. Well, okay, I take it. Ken Liu came and found me and had a chat with me, but, you know, he's only a world-famous author. You know, whatever. Um, <laughs> come talk to me, guys. I don't care who you are. If you listen to it and you, you have things that you want to say to me about the stories, like I said, even if you disagree with me, that's the whole point is to get a dialogue going, is to talk about this, about why you disagree, you know, or why you agree, what you think is good, what you think works, what you think doesn't. But in this instance, this is this one's hard to fault because it does, does it does hit so many uh, it does hit so many different areas that we like to talk about. So go get it, Clockwork Cairo, and let's have a chat.
have foreign engineers building your railroads. No, yao. Foreign bankers holding your debt. No, yao. Foreign gunboats in your harbor. Then you need Mohammedan and Salaspi, chartered purveyors of bespoke modernities, since October 18, 1816. We know Reaper drone is the new We know intermodal cargo container is the new opium chest. We know the early 21st century is the new late 19th. And we are here to modernificate you against it. So, delay no more. Visit us in the intertubes at www.mohammedanandcelestial.com At Mohammedan and Celestial, and we here the great powers invoke civilization. We chamber around in our C96 on your behalf. You are listening to the Steampunk Dollhouse with Librarian Blue Stocking. Thank you, Osgood. And if you want to head on back to the gallery, I will fill the listeners in about the open submissions for Gallery of Curiosities. Literary listeners, if you are a short story writer and you want to hear your story read on a podcast, you have the shot coming up. Uh, Gallery of Curiosities is now accepting uh, submissions. They will be accepting them up to February 28th. These are for works that are 7,500 or less. Um, If you're not familiar with Gallery of Curiosities, they are a pretty kick-ass spec-fic anthology podcast, and they do have a magazine. Um, The stories are amazing. It's one of my favorite podcasts. And what they're specifically looking for, steampunk, gas lamp, weird tales, dreadpunk, vintage horror, mad scientists, uh, fantastic cities, monsters, Impossible Machines, Clockworks, Alt History, Adventures, Surprises, Weird Westerns, and Things That Shouldn't Work. And they have said they will read Bizarro, but it must have an internal logic to it. So do with that what you will. Uh, Now, what they absolutely do not want, no serialized novels, no novel excerpts, no stories longer than 7,500 words, no fan fiction, Sherlockians, no vulgar language that's just used as punctuation, no cutters. No horror stories that spend most of the word count telling us all of the mundane little details of the contemporary protagonist's life before getting to it. Weirdly, no JFK theories. It makes me wonder how many JFK theories they get. Um, No mainstream science fiction space stories. And nothing that has been on a podcast within the last 18 months. Uh, So, if you think you have something that will fit in with that, then I highly encourage you to... Submit to the Gallery of Curiosities. I do have a link in the show notes for the submissions page, but I also highly recommend that you download the podcast, give it a listen. It's really, really good. Um, I've been poking at them for a long time to to give me a, a bumper to run in my show, and they Osgood finally obliged. It just took a little while, so I am very thankful for that. Um, so go check out Gallery of Curiosities. Maybe submit something to them. I would like to hear, and let me know. If you get accepted, let me know. I would like to, to hear that one of my listeners is going to have a story out there on the etherwebs. It's very exciting. And always remember, if you like what I've done here, please don't forget to go and rate and review over on the iTunes. Um, even if you don't use iTunes to listen, you can still rate and review as long as you have an iTunes account. And I know I say this all the time, but it's true. Your opinion matters, and it has an impact on how many people can find us. And finally, I did want to throw out there that I am always open to new promos to run here in my show. Clearly, I run a lot of them. 
uh, it's probably become pretty apparent that I do really dig on supporting my fellow creators, especially those in the steampunk community. Um, and happily, the amount of quality steampunk podcasts has increased dramatically in recent years. And I want to support all of them, but I can only do so much on my own. And I'm not always immediately aware of new shows that are out there or shows that may have been out there for a while that I just didn't know about. Um, because some of them, like Clockwork Cabaret, those don't come up under steampunk if you search steampunk. So some things that aren't specific, if, you, if it's not tagged specifically with steampunk, I think in the title, it's really hard to find. It's really weird and it's a pain in the ass. So send me an email. Um, if you have a bumper that you want me to run, contact me at steampunkdollhouse at gmail.com. And if I think it's a good fit, I will work it in. And honestly, my idea of what constitute, constitutes a good fit, it's pretty broad and open. So give me a shot. I would love to hear from you. I have already had a few people take me up on that. I am waiting to listen to their shows and also to get their bumpers in. So we could be changing things up here a little bit in the future. So contact me. Say hello. Send me what you got. I look forward to hearing from you. And with that, we are done. We will see you in (laughs) roughly two weeks for Destination Perdido Street Station or why punishing people with extreme plastic surgery is really fucked up with the Balog series by China Mieville. Thanks, guys. Have a great week. is a Wind Up Girl Studios production and bears a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share-alike, 4.0, international license. It is written and produced by Elizabeth Hedrick. Production assistance, artwork, and moral support provided by Matt and Josephine Davis. Transmission alerts provided by library field agent Robbie Copperstocking Davenport of the Steamrollers Adventure Podcast. Our intro music is Baby I'm Not Your Lady by Sing and Sadie, and our exit music is Goodnight by the Knickerbocker Quartet. These songs and all other episode music can be found at freemusicarchive.org. All episode sound effects can be found at freesound.org. For complete attribution, see the show notes or visit our website at spdhpod.com. Accepted a job with a known garbage person in their garbage family, and now you're staring down the barrel of an indictment for obstruction, but you're only 29, so you're young and allowed to make mistakes, right? There's still hope, right? Contact us for assistance at steampunkdollhouse at gmail.com or on Facebook and Twitter at SPDHPod. And finally, we thank you for tuning in. I'll keep reading your rights for as long as you keep listening. Blue Stocking out. Accept. Blame. Phrase.